0: Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God. We'll be returning to the Gospel of John. I'll be reading chapter 7 in the first 24 verses. And as we just sang Psalm 94, I think if you have those words in your mind, you might wonder whether John thought about that psalm as he wrote this passage, whether or not Jesus sung that psalm as he went through these events. And so give your attention now to the reading of God's Word. John chapter 7. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the, feast of, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand, and his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is, not, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know his know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel." Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should, be, should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing, please. Most holy God, we have your words here before us, words of life words that transform people's lives, but they will not do anything unless you in your mercy bless us with the power and work of the Holy Spirit, who we invite now to have his way with us as we give ourselves to the preaching of the word. Do this to the glory of the name of your Son, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, darkness does not dwell with light, never can, never will, and unbelief is uncomfortable around faith. And ultimately, those who reject Jesus for who he is are intolerant of those who acknowledge him as Lord. These are the conflicts of unbelief. These are the conflicts that we're seeing, we saw through the chapter, uh, previous chapter, chapter six, as we went from thousands following Jesus whittled down to just some twelve. So far in the the Gospel of John, we see five of the seven signs that John assigns uh, in his Gospel for us to see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Five of those signs so far. Four were all up in Galilee, uh, and only one was down in Jerusalem where Jesus had healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. That sign was the one which caused hostility towards Jesus. That was the one where afterwards they say they would want to kill him. He had healed on the Sabbath, and the Jewish authorities wanted to kill him. In chapter 6, as I said, Jesus winnows followers in the thousands to just a handful with his refusal to be king on their terms. They want to make him king. They're ready to to bring in the great revolution. They're ready to follow him, but they're ready to follow him on their terms. And Jesus withdraws. He will have nothing to do with being made king on our terms. He is king and, and, and requires of us to follow him as king on his terms. And his scandalous words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood just ruined the day in terms of trying to gather more and more followers. Now, now we come to chapter 7, and the, and the conflicts accelerate. But Christ, in his message, leans into the conflict. Again, rather than Christ... Kind of cooling things down, Christ leans into the conflict and continues to bring light into darkness. He continues to bring life in the midst of death. He is life coming to the world full of the stench of death. I want you to keep these two phrases in mind. I've, I've, I've said this many times. I will keep saying it as we go through the Gospel of John. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John in chapter 1 are a prologue. If you would read those regularly as we go through John, you will see the themes of the Gospel of John. And in those themes, then, as as we read through, as we preach through the Gospel of John, you'll see those themes continue to be pressed out, to be uh, opened up, to be uh, considered in in far more detail. Keep these two sections of that prologue in mind as we go. Verses uh, 4 and 5 of chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Or, as we saw, darkness did not overcome it is also a way to translate that. And in verses 10 through 12 of chapter one, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And so we find ourselves also confronted with the conflicts of unbelief. We find a world, we, you live in a world, in a culture that will not, as a culture, will not believe on the Lord Jesus. Or may try to make him king on their own terms. For instance, there are many people who would say, Yes, I have made Jesus Lord of my heart, and I've invited him to my heart, and I have a personal relationship with Jesus. But he's that that's my own personal religion over here. It doesn't really affect much else that goes on in my world. I, I'm not to I'm not to bring his teaching, his kingship to bear. Uh, on the people around me or on the events that are going around me. He's, he's my personal savior. And that becomes, that's, that's making Jesus king on our own terms. We also find we live in a world where there's a conflict because of unbelief in Jesus, who is the truth. and And the way that's spinning out of control here is now we live in a world, in a culture that cannot define truth Cannot declare truth, and when truth is right before them, straight before them in their eyes, any any of the truth of the created order, they are more than willing to deny it, for the sake of appearances. They're more than willing to deny it, for the sake of the culture around them, the pressure of the culture around them. The conflicts of unbelief cause us to be a people, a culture that deny the very truth of, of the world, and the very truths of Scripture, and the very truth of the kingship of Jesus Christ for the sake of appearances, for the sake of looking good, fitting in, that kind of thing. We would do well to learn from Jesus as he comes into these conflicts. Verses 1 through um, 9, we first of all have these conflicts with his own family. And I find this interesting to keep in mind. Um, If if you are a Christian in a a family or an extended family of unbelievers— and you, you, and, and you find yourself struggling with, um, ha, how, how is it that my witness is not making a difference? Well, you're in good company. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> grows up in a family, and we're told here that in his, he's now 30 years old, and his brothers don't believe him. His brothers don't believe him. From chapter 6 to chapter 7, I want you to know this also. Chapter 6 took place around, if you recall, around the time of Passover, and Passover is the spring um, festival of the Jews. Now we're told that it is the Feast of Tabernacles. that's in late September, early October. And so six months have taken place from the end of chapter six to the end of chapter seven. and we have, we're not given in John's account any more activities. Actually, there's quite a bit in the Synoptics, but none of that is given to us in in John. So now six months have gone by. And Jesus, we are told, had confined his movements to the province of Galilee during that time and did not go down to Judea because the Jewish elite there sought to kill him. The Jews, says, were seeking to kill him. But when the Feast of Tabernacles was coming near, his brothers challenged Jesus to go into Judea and show himself to the world, verses 2 through 4. They did this, we're told in verse five, because they didn't believe him. And so the passage should be read read as as almost a challenge or a taunt to Jesus. In verse four, they say, for for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. You're up here in Galilee. You need to take this to the big city. If you really want to be proclaimed as king of kings, as the king of the Jews, what are you doing up here, Jesus? Really, go show yourself. What, are you afraid or something? Maybe that might have been... Uh, in parenthetically, thought. He says, if you do, they say, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe him. Jesus replied that he, it was not yet his time and that the world hated him because he called out their works as evil, verses six through eight. In the verse nine, it says that he remained in Galilee while his family went on down to the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, let's uh, take a look at just a couple of things with regard to Jesus' brothers here. First of all, brothers, that, that brings questions to mind sometimes. Jesus had brothers? Jesus had brothers and sisters? Well, yeah, Joseph and Mary had at least six other children. We see them, the, the, the uh, uh, men or the boys are named in uh, Matthew chapter 13, 55 and 56. And then it said, and his sisters. So we know there were at least two sisters, but they're not named. The four brothers were named James, Joseph, yeah. Judah, and Simon. They were pious Jews because and we know this because they're going down to observe the feast of tabernacles but they did not believe the claims that Jesus was making. Earlier, they had tried to take charge of him when when people said he is out of his mind. as recorded in both in Mark and Matthew's gospel, and were probably embarrassed by the accusations leveled against him as well as his response. So there's a, a time where there, there's a number of people that have gathered together to hear Jesus, and 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 then they start to say he's crazy, and and Jesus, and they say he must be casting out demons by the, because he's the prince of demons. And Jesus says, Jesus says no, I, 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 the the leader is not going to. Uh, persecute his own people and cast out his own people. So if Beelzebub is, is, is casting out demons, then his kingdom is destroyed. That's not, that's not what's going on. And, and then, he, um, then the, the crowd might be pressing in on him. And you can imagine the brothers and Jesus' mothers show up. And they might be coming in to like, okay, we need to get him out of here. Things, things are getting hostile. And, and so someone comes up to him in this pressing crowd and says, and says to him, uh, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. And he turns, his mother and his brothers are there. And he turns and says, who are my mother and brothers? All of you are my brothers and sisters and mothers. And, and he claims a higher level of family commitment based on faith and following him than, than, than his own brothers. We're not told in scripture, but I can surmise they may have been a little offended by such a comment. So this is the relationship that we know about Jesus that he has with our brothers, with his brothers. And in our passage, they challenged him, that if he really meant what he said, that he should go to Jerusalem and publicly show these great signs along with his claims. It should be noted that after the resurrection, some, if not all of the, of the four brothers, came to faith. This may have occurred with the appearance, uh, first with the appearance of James. Uh, Paul writes after the resurrection that Jesus appeared, and he says specifically he appeared to the, to the twelve and to James... So James is, is, is pointed out, particularly the brother of Jesus, as, um, as being uh, brought into faith and into a, a, a follower of the Lord Jesus. And at Pentecost, we're told in Acts chapter 1, that the brothers were found to be with the disciples in the upper room. James is the author of the book of James, and Judah is the author of the book of Jude, which might be confusing to you also. Um, let me make it more confusing. Um, you could also call him Judas. Judas the Greek word is Judas, and it can be translated Jude, Judas, Judah. They're all just different ways of translating that Greek word. So Judah, Judah, or Judas, wrote the book of Jude. And it should also be noted that Mary did not therefore remain a virgin after giving birth to Jesus. Matthew um, one twenty-five 25, um, says that, um, um, that uh, Mary's um, husband, Joseph, did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And then it says, and he called his name Jesus. He did not know her. He did not have relations with her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. So there's really no, um, th- there is, there's no doctrine to be gathered from the scriptures for what the Roman church calls the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is tied into their veneration of Mary. Um, and, and besides that, the, the idea of a perpetual virginity is, is, is put forth as, as making her in some way more holy, which has really done all kinds of damage um, in terms of understanding the gift of marriage and the gift of sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. Um, there's really no doctrine to be brought out of Scripture with regard to that. So there's some family stuff with regard to Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit also about the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, the... Feast of Tabernacles, because it might cross your mind, it says in verse 9, when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. And then it says, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast. Well, it's not like five minutes later he went up. The Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day celebration. Um, And we're told later that it's probably the middle of the feast that he begins teaching in the temple. So he may have waited two, three days before he headed down um, afterwards. His, he wasn't going to go in the way that they wanted him to go, but he did intend to go um, as soon as the father wanted him to go. He was not following the whims of his brothers, but the will of his father in heaven. So this was the most popular feast in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It was quite a party. Um, it was an eight-day celebration where countless 1000s were were told, were ro- would road trip to Jerusalem and hang out in tents all over the city. I mean, what fun could that be, right? Barbecues all over, in tents. It's the end of your big harvest season. All that hard work is done. You get to go and meet with all of your friends from all over Judea, all over, um, uh, all over Israel, those who could make it, and have a party for a week. It's like family camp you know, for a whole week, and and just a great time is had by all. Well, the most religious people of the nation also would most likely be there. There was lots of teaching going on, lots of gatherings of of these peoples, Um, and so what better opportunity for Jesus to prove his claims and show his wares? There they all are, all gathered together. His brothers would be right in one sense, wouldn't they? This would be the place for Jesus to reveal himself publicly, Jesus would show himself to the world um, and his brothers say, show yourself to the world. But his time, he said, had not come in verse six. His time would come on the day that we celebrate now as Palm Sunday. His day would come at the next Passover when he would ride into Jerusalem the week of Passover to, to begin a week that would end by being lifted up on a cross, showing himself to the world as the savior of all who would look to him like the bronze serpent who would look to him and have the curse of the, of the snake, of the serpent's bite upon us um, taken away and our forgiveness of sins given. That's when Jesus would truly show himself to the world, but not at this time. This was not the right time. And, and notice also the the Passover, when the Passover takes place and he's lifted up on the cross, Mary is there, but his brothers weren't there. His brothers were not there as as he was dying on the cross. They were not believing at that time. That showing would reveal the evil of the world. And Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. And here is the antithesis, the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15, God sets this upon us, sets this upon the created order after the fall. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All conflict in the world can be be ultimately brought down to to this thing, the the, the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This conflict, this enmity, this ongoing hatred that will not end until the final coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the putting down of, um, of all evil forever then. So that is the antithesis. And this enmity is fixed by God, and it's impossible to eradicate except through the work of Christ. The issue is, as it was back in the garden that brought about this enmity, the issue is authority. The serpent was a fallen angel. The serpent was one who refused to give a full authority and and submission to the authority of God the Father. Um, And then Adam follows in that by refusing to submit to the authority and teaching of God and his word. The issue that brings forth enmity, the issue that brings forth um, evil, the thing that disconnects us from all that is good and beautiful and true and eternal is our refusal to bow to the authority of the creator, to his way, to his words. That's where all enmity comes from. And so this issue is authority. Who will be God? We either will be under the authority of our Father in heaven, an authority that originates outside of the world, or we will want to be under the authority of our own whims and passions, trying to discover and make authority within the created order. Because of this, there's conflict, and as we see here in verses 10 through 18, there's conflict, conflict all around. Jesus does go, in fact, and show himself, but not in the way his brothers were thinking. Rather than going up and performing great miracles, you, you know, that, that's what they would have been th- thinking, right? So, okay, here's how you're going to do it, Jesus. You know that, that uh, multiplying the bread thing you did? You know all those healings that have been going on? You know how you took care of a lame man? Now, what you're going to do, we need to go down to Jerusalem and you go do all those displays, all those great signs, all those great miracles, and then they'll see who you really are. And Jesus goes down, and what does he do? Goes in the temple and teaches. He starts teaching. That, that's going to. That's that's what he believes is going to be used to accomplish what he is after accomplishing. After accomplishing, Jesus places great importance on preaching and teaching. John tells us that there had been a lot of whispering about Jesus as well, hoping he would come, but not talking openly about it openly for fear of the Jewish authorities who were also looking for him. Look with me again at verse eleven, thirteen. Then the Jews sought him at the feast. Among there was much complaining. Some said that he was good. Others said, no, there, there's contra- on the contrary, he deceives the people. In verse 13, however, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. And I want you to notice here, there, there's this, there are two groups of people that are being identified. There's the Jews and the people. Now, the people, the crowds that, that are gathering to listen to Jesus, they are Jews, but, but what John is distinguishing is between the, the people, the crowds that have come to hear him, talking about him, wondering about him, some turn, turn and follow him, some don't, and the Jews. The Jews are the, uh, is, would be a word that would also be used to refer to the elites, to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, to the, the authorities within the temple and over the Jewish system, the Jude, Judaic religious system. So when he's here's when he's talking about the Jews, that's that's what he's referring to. Those leaders who've been offended by Jesus' teachings, versus the people who are wondering what's going on and talking back and forth. But it says the people wouldn't talk openly about it, and they wouldn't talk openly about it, it says, for fear of the Jews. Well, the authorities do not want Jesus discussed publicly. Look, you can have your little Jesus thing in your heart, but we're not talking about him publicly. Do you understand? It'll cause trouble here. It'll cause trouble at work. It'll cause trouble in the crowds. It'll cause trouble in, in, in the neighborhoods. We're not talking about Jesus. Um, in in uh, 922, if you look ahead over there, it says, uh, th- this is the blind man. We'll get to the story of the blind man pretty soon, but it's the blind man's parents said these things when they, they say, we don't, know. we don't know who we talked to. We don't know what was going on. You, you go ask him. And, and it says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, that Jesus was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Okay, So that's the situation. That's, that's what's going on in Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's, um, you might lose your job. You might get thrown out of the synagogue. You might get kicked out of, uh, of church for naming Jesus as the Christ. And later, Jesus will warn his disciples that this cancel culture style will continue against them as well. In John chapter 15, it says, That the world hates you. You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also, and then in verse uh, chapter sixteen, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he has offered God service. And and you know, in my lifetime, we're seeing this take place more and more and more, where to name the name of Christ publicly costs you something. To refuse. Um, to, to keep quiet about it means you, you might be allowed to be around, but if they find out you're a follower of Jesus, it's going to cha- it can change all kinds of things um, in your life. Well, this is taking place already in Jesus' day in Jerusalem. We're told that Jesus goes into the temple and teaches, <coughs> and they marvel at his teaching, verse 14 and 15. He had not studied in the rabbinical centers, and he apparently doesn't appeal to the weight of the traditions. It was um, Josephus and others described that the rabbis, when they would teach after they had been to these religious centers, would would build their cases based on um, the teachings of many other rabbis. Lots of footnotes, lots of pointing to what all the other uh, rabbis had said in order to make their case. And Jesus just keeps on saying, everything that I'm teaching, I got from the one who sent me. Or if you remember um, what, what he would say when he, was, when he was making the corrections in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, well, you have heard, and he'd quote, um, either a text from Scripture or sometimes an interpretation of that text by the rabbis. And then he would say, but I say to you, it's like, who are you? And this is how he would preach with, and teach with authority. He would stand up and teach with authority, but he seemed to be able to handle the Word and the teachings of the Scriptures so well they're saying, where did this guy study? How did he get his letters? I mean, not just meaning that he could read, but how did he understand the scriptures so well? Of course, we know why, but they didn't. They, they couldn't figure it out for sure. And he apparently doesn't appeal at all to those traditions. Rather, he appeals to the fact that he's teaching, his teaching is directly from the one who sent me. And so again, Jesus is challenging the Jews. He's challenging the Jewish authorities as that they are not the final authority. He's challenging the origin and nature of authority. Where does authority come from? The people feared those authorities, those earthly authorities. They were afraid of the Jews. They had been told they could be kicked out of the synagogue. Later on in the book of Acts, we will see that you can be killed for naming Jesus as Christ. Might they have turned to Jesus if there could be an open and free discussion? Could we have an open and free discussion about this? No, not in the public square. This is canceled culture at work in first century Jesus day. No, there'll be no discussion about this, but there could not be because the establishment would not allow it. So what should we learn? Be careful. Be careful when you have been granted recognition and honor or the circus and bread by the world's authorities for it might stifle your faith. John 5.44, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not see the honor that comes only from God? If you received honor from the world, and this it's not a sin to receive honor from the world, but if you received honor from the world, beware of the temptation to compromise your declaration of Jesus Christ as King and Lord at the expense of losing the honor, the recognition, or the reputation that you have so freely received from those who have lauded you in some ways. This is the world that we live in. It's the world that we live in more and more. I see, I see evidences of the kind of thing that Jesus was putting up with taking place on, in a, on, a, on front and center in our world more and more in this generation. The kowtowing of the church to tyrannical authority has come upon us. And it has come upon us because we so much want to be considered relevant, and we fear losing that. We are um, slow and fat imitators of the world in all their coolness. Whatever they're doing that's cool, we just want to be just like them, and so we run after them trying to imitate them. We're slow, we're behind the curve, and we don't do it as well. But boy, we want to be relevant with them. We want to be accepted by them. We want to be a part. Or as many people will say, we want to have a place at the table in the negotiations or in the discussions about how the world or how the city government or how, or how the institutions should be run. We have a place at the table. We want to have a voice. How can we have a voice? We can have a voice if you shut up about Jesus. If you shut up, shut up about his claims to ultimate authority that come from a transcendent place outside of the world system. You shut up about that, you can have your little Christian name and your little Jesus in your heart, and that's just fine. But if you want to, be a pla- you want to have a place of honor, you want to have a place of, of, of real importance in this world, you will leave that faith alone outside of that, of that part of the world. Well, so in discussions now about secular education or materialistic scientism or the traditional roles of husband and wife and family or of critical race theory and the like, we find ourselves quickly on the defensive. We don't speak openly and in an in, in offense like Jesus said. We don't say the Bible says. We don't say, well, the word of God says. We don't say outside, of the, outside of, the world's, of the world itself is one who imposed his law and his ways upon the system. We try to argue within the system. And as soon as we try to argue within the system, what we have to do is go on the defensive. Jesus doesn't go on the defensive. He just says, my father says. He says, this is the way it is. This is the way the world is. And he gets in trouble for it. And, but, but we need, to, we need to, are we going to be followers of Christ in how we bring truth to the world around us? We find ourselves quickly on the defensive because we fear man and not God. And Jesus warned us, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The church is afraid of man. The church today is afraid of the acceptance of man. And that's why we have bowed. That's why we have lost power. That's why we have lost influence. That's why we have millions and millions and millions of Christians living in America making absolutely no difference in the culture of America today. Because we want to be a part of it all. We want to be relevant. We want the honor of men and we fear man. We fear man rather than fearing God. Proverbs 8 says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Proverbs 8:13. Jesus was not afraid to go on the defense uh, to, to not go on the defensive. If anyone wills to do his will he says in verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, this is a really important verse. Take a look at it. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. You catch him? If anyone has decided beforehand, whatever it says in here, I'm not opening it. Whatever it says in here is true, and I am to obey it and follow it. Now let's open it up and see what it says. Anyone who is willing to do that will know who Jesus is. Okay? Anyone who wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Obedience and submission to the one who is authority is the great opener of eyes. Remember that. Obedience is the great opener of eyes. When you are struggling understanding who God is, when you are struggling understanding whether or not you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether or not he really is the Son of God, when you struggle with that, one of the first things you should think to yourself is, where am I not obeying? Because obedience is the great opener of eyes. When you are struggling believing that God is sovereignly in control of all that is going on in your life, Sovereignly in control of everything that everything going on in the world around you When you are in a panic one of the things you should think to yourself is where is my disobedience? Where is my disobedience because obedience is the great opener of eyes Augustine who yet for all of his brilliance and Everyone will tell you that Augustine is one of the most brilliant thinkers and writers in the history of humanity Yet for all of his brilliance, bucked against the gospel for years, his mother, Monica, prays for him, and he runs off in all kinds of licentiousness, all kinds of false, weird weird, uh, doctrines and, and religions, and he's the one who said, after his conversion, seek not to understand that you may believe, rather believe that you may understand. Seek not to understand so that you may believe, but believe... So that you may understand. Well, that's exactly what Peter said, remember, at the end of chapter 6, verse 69. When when Peter said, um, Jesus had said, Well, are you guys going to go away also? Everybody else has left. There's 12, the 12 are just there. Simon Peter answered and, and said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know. We have come to believe and know, I believe in that order, that you are the Christ the son of the, of the living God. The one who is willing to obey will know, will understand. The one who is not willing to obey will not know. This happens all the time when, you try, when you're trying to share the gospel, when you try to witness to someone, they have a bunch of questions and you start to answer some of their questions and there's the shift all of a sudden to a bunch of other questions. And then there's a shift to something else. And it isn't, after a little while, you start to realize you, you should start to ask this question. Okay, before I answer any more of your questions, if I answered every single one of your questions, if I was to convince you, but beyond a shadow of a doubt, for you, that Jesus Christ actually is who he claimed to be, okay, there were no more questions. Would you believe? And if if that person was honest, you know their answer. Their answer would be no. Because the questions are not questions, um, they are not questions in order to believe. They are questions in order to throw up smoke screens, to keep Jesus at arm's length. That's what's going on. In, in, our, in, in our nature, our nature is not that we are seeking for the Lord Jesus Christ in our fallen nature, and if just if we just had a few questions answered, then all would be well. We live our lives from our depraved nature, from our fallen nature, doing everything we can to avoid Jesus Christ, to avoid who he is and what he claims about us. We don't want to know God. And so, and you know this, you have people who are in our world, in our culture, there are all kinds of people who are elevated and they're praised because they are seekers. They're seeking truth. They, they are, and, and we think it's so, you know, they've gone off, they're seeking. But what do we say about someone who says, I have found truth? I've found truth. We call them arrogant. How, how dare you say your truth is everybody's truth? Because we don't want it to define truth anymore. And we shut down such speech. We, we cancel that kind of speech. So this is what's going on here. Um, so... The one who is not willing to obey will not know. And an unbeliever does not believe because he does not wish to repent. Doesn't want to repent. And believers, now let's talk about us for a moment as well. Believers become soft, twisting the meanings of words and the word because they do not to wish to obey at the cost of being shunned. So much of Truly, so much of what we might call liberal Christianity or liberal theology comes from wanting to not be too mean. Don't want to be too mean. I will be called mean by the culture. So we're going to change definitions. We're going to change what this sentence means in the scriptures. We're going to change what we're going to question whether or not that was actually in the original text or whether or not we even have an original, uh, any, anything that likens itself to the original Bible. We come up with all kinds of reasons so, we, so that we can be accepted by the world. And when we do that, that's when we have lost all of our strength, the strength that Jesus had as he proclaimed the truth of his father without, um, without compromise. So there's conflict with family, there's conflict all about, and there's conflict with keeping of the law. Again, if you give your attention to verse 19, Jesus is going to now deal with this idea of why do you want to kill me? And yet you say you keep, you're you're after me because I don't keep the Sabbath, I don't. You're saying I don't keep God's law, but you want to you want to kill me, and and this is uh, this this could have been published in like not the B or I'm sorry like in the Babylon B. This is this is that kind of thing that's going on there right there. The irony irony here is dripping. Okay, follow along again. Did Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And then, and then imagine the people off to the side that heard him say that. They, they're saying to themselves, the people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered and said to them, both to the people, but I think to the Jews also, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. In, in other words, you got that wrong also, but we'll, we'll set that aside for the moment. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Remember, it was the Jewish authorities who wanted to kill Jesus, not the people. So when Jesus says that they are seeking to kill him, they think he is getting paranoid or he has a demon. What's your problem, Jesus? Verse 19 But what Jesus is really getting after is the Jewish elite, the Pharisees and those in authorities, who charged him with breaking the Sabbath. If they understood, and as they did, they understood that an infant could be circumcised on the eighth day, even if it fell on the Sabbath. So there was the Sabbath laws. You may may not do any work on the Sabbath. There was also the requirement that if you had a male child, he must be circumcised on the eighth day. If the eighth day landed on a Sabbath then you were to, you were to circumcise that, that boy on the Sabbath anyway. Okay, that, that was the understanding. And Jesus says to them, look, if you think that the law teaches that it's good to circumcise a boy if it's on the eighth day, how much more would it be good and right to bring someone into complete healing, make them whole on the Sabbath? That's the argument that he's going on. But then he pushes it even farther. He says, because of that, you think that I'm breaking God's law, but you're seeking to kill me. What about Exodus, guys? Thou shalt not murder? Can we go to the Bible here? You see what he's saying? You see the irony? You see the, the, the hypocrisy that is going on? That's the hypocrisy that comes from tyranny. That's a hypocrisy that comes from those who, who see themselves as the final authority. That's what those kinds of rulers do, and we see it all around us in so many different ways. They were not the ones keeping God's law, for they were seeking to murder him. And then verse 24, finally verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. I want you to consider that verse carefully. Jesus is condemning their judging by appearances, and that is exactly what our culture is doing today. Common sense would have told them healing a man on the Sabbath was not Sabbath breaking. It was just common sense. I mean, common sense. It's the Sabbath, it's a day of rest, a day of gift giving, and we're going to go ahead, we're going to heal this man, and he's going to be healed of years and years of infirmity, and he's going to be able to get up and walk. How could that be breaking the Sabbath? I mean, it's just common sense. But not just common sense, even, even righteous judgment, that is, faithful Bible study. But they're not judging on faithful Bible study. And they're not even following common sense. They're judging by appearances. If we let this guy get away with this, then we're going to have to follow what he claims. We can't let him get away with this. We, we don't want to follow. His, so therefore, we need to shut him down. We need to put him out. We need to delete his Twitter account right now. This is, this is cancel culture going on. So, so common sense or Bible study with faithful submission to the plain teaching of scripture would have brought clear, clear uh, teaching to this whole thing. But they were judging based on appearances and appeasing those that were in power. This is what tyrants do. They manipulate the moral system, disconnecting it from any transcendent authority in order to become the transcendent authority themselves. There is no such thing. As a secular environment, it doesn't exist. There is no secular world. When they say that you must leave Jesus out of this part of the world, you have to understand there's another God there. There's always a God of the system. If Jesus is not God of the system, another God, an idol, A tyrant will be the God of the system. Jesus would have none of it because Jesus loves freedom. Jesus loves setting people free and ultimately from the tyranny of their sin. And we must follow Jesus. He would be crucified for it and he promised we would be persecuted as well. He promised we would be persecuted as well but we know where creation came from. We know that God created man in his image in a binary way, no exceptions. We know the delegated authority and limits of civil, ecclesial, and familial governments established by the transcendent God. We know about the dignity of all human life from conception until death. Regardless of the quote-unquote health or ability or quality that that person can bring to the rest of the world. More importantly, we know that forgiveness of sins is offered to all who call in the name of Jesus. But of course, we also know that that presupposes that we know what sin and lawlessness is and what God thinks of it, your sin and your lawlessness. We know that Jesus reigns over heaven and earth with all authority, and we know that that reign is good, and right, and just, and long-suffering, and full of mercy. We know that the darkness cannot and will not overcome his authority. We know Jesus wins. We know Jesus wins. And so, with that confidence, we call on all men everywhere to repent and believe that they may come to know as well. Repent and believe that you may come to know as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Lord, we can so easily be manipulated when we fear man and not God, and here we are, even to refusing to believe on the Lord Jesus. Grant us faith. Grant us the courage of Christ to stand for honest and transcendent truth in the midst of lies and power plays. Grant us humility before you and your word and use your church to be salt and light here for the saving work of this generation. And we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the very Son of God. And amen. amen. Please stand and turn to 400.